City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar Hello, I'm Sandra Gilman, Chairman of the American Theatre Wing. And I'm Doug Leeds, President. We have a very exciting seminar today, delving in-depth into how theatre gets made. Both the Annenberg Foundation and Dorothy Strelson Foundation have played a major part in expanding these programs, and we want to thank them. People often come up to me and say, we know the American Theatre Wing founded the Tonys, to recognize excellence in the theater. But what else do you do? Well, a lot. An awful lot. These seminars are just one of the many educational programs we sponsor. We also produce Downstage Center, a weekly theater interview show on XM Satellite Radio, Springboard NYC, a summer session for college students interested in theater as a career. We host the theater intern group, and give annual scholarships to students and grants to New York not-for-profit theater, both off and off-off Broadway. So yes, we do a lot more than just recognize excellence on Broadway with the Tony Awards, which the Wing founded almost 60 years ago. We serve the entire theater community by educating, nurturing, rewarding, and encouraging participation in the art of live theater. Be sure to go to our website www.americantheaterwing.org. You'll find a great deal of information on theater, all of our educational programs, and of course, these seminars. Thanks for joining us. Now let's begin today's seminar on Dirty Rotten Scoundrels with our moderator, Ted Chapin. Welcome to this seminar. Um, this is one of the production seminars, and the show that we're going to be talking about today is called Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. I'd like to introduce the panel. Uh, from my right, Jerry Mitchell, the choreographer. <clears throat> Norbert Leo Butts, one of the stars. <laughs> David Yazbek, composer, lyricist. That's Broadway's David Yazbek. Broadway Broadway's Jeffrey Lane, the librettist. <laughs> Broadway's darling Sherry Renee Scott. Yeah. And director Jack O'Brien. Now, I thought I'd begin for the loyal Theatre Wing supporters and people who like watching these s seminars. Lest you think that a, a play called Dirty Rotten Scoundrels is an unearthed, recently unearthed Eugene O'Neill play about Teamsters <laughs> and Longshoremen, <laughs> we would start by looking at a little clip of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, which I think will give us an idea of what it is that we're dealing with. So let's watch the clip of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. A dirty rotten guy like it's almost a religion The need to take a pigeon And to play the part with elegance and zest But when it's time to fold the act And your duffel bag is packed Take comfort in the fact That you've been working with the best 
It was a blast, it was a ball, it was a gas. I loved it all, cause I was hanging with the man, and that's a blast. Ah, Freddy, you got the nerve. You got the guts. You got the nerve. You got the nuts. I guess we're dirty, rotten, we're dirty, dirty, rotten. Leo Butts and John Lithgow, the co-star in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Um, as you can see from the clip, it's not what I described earlier. It's a musical comedy about two con men on the Riviera. And I thought that we would start by, uh, by asking w how this got started. I, I looked at the playbill before coming here, and I realized that sometimes, as you know, musicals start with the producers, and I doubt that either David Belasco or Florence Ziegfeld, both of whom are listed as producers, are the ones who called somebody up and said, let's do this. But I figured somewhere between these two guys is where it started. David? Um, well, I wanted to do a... Uh Musical as a Eugene O'Neill play about longshoremen. <laughs> it got confused. Couldn't get the rights. Uh, I was watching television, watching television, and it was, you know how you'll have one channel showing the same movie for a week over and over again? So it was the Dirty Rotten Scandals channel. And I said, oh, I'll watch it. I, I remember liking it. And uh, I, I watched it, and I thought, this could make a musical. This, the, the setting and the, the highbrow, lowbrow, you know, the, uh, the characters, and the movie was just flawed enough to make me feel like it would be really fun to work on it and just try to get into it. And I, uh, I, my agent called MGM, who was very excited about the idea of a musical version of it, and as soon as they said, yes, yes, I just shut down and <laughs> didn't call them back for a long time because it would have meant working. So, <laughs> 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 does, does mean that. <laughs> so I, um, but about six months, eight months later, uh, we got a call from MGM, and they said, "There's this, there's this guy Jeffrey Lane. He's a he's a he's a TV writer, and he he's he's been asking about it. And uh, you know, it, are you still interested? Because, and we all, depending on who you speak to, um, <laughs> whether David Belasco or uh, MGM or my agent, um, some somehow somewhere, we all said, well, let's have the two of us meet." And, uh, and you take it from there. When you called, you, you also con contacted them. Yeah, I had actually contacted, I, they had a list of uh, properties they were looking to license, and I still have the list. It has The Exorcist on it. It's <laughs> the turntable possibilities are endless. <laughs> but, uh, turntable within turntable. And it had Dirty Rotten Sales where, where I have a little check mark next to it. And uh, I just thought, yeah, this, this comment has always fascinated me. And I just thought, this could be really cool. I met with them. They said, who do you think, you know, would be a good composer for this? And I said, well, David Yazbek. Only not knowing David, just knowing from Paul Monte. 
And they said, well, he'd actually called, and they never called back. Um, so we met in New York. We had lunch. Uh, we lived three blocks apart from each other for about 20 years until we started working together, and then David moved upstate, uh, which I don't take personally. But we sat down and talked, and I had worked at an outline. And it, we just started to feel like we wanted to do the same show. And when I got to the point where I said, you know, I think there should be a song here called Love is My Legs and You Are My Love, So You Are My Legs. And David said, my love. <laughs> and we knew, okay, this will work. No, right. We yeah. can find a middle ground. Exactly. Yeah. I should point out that MGM on stage, which owns these rights, uh, right. they're the two people who, who run it, Darcy Denkert and, and Dean, Dean Stolper, Stolper, are very um, open to this kind of, I mean, yeah. for years. No, they were great. They've been trying to encourage this. And of course, piece of trivia, do you know who Dean Stolper was? For he, was he was Harvey Johnson in Bye Bye Birdie. Yeah, those yes. of you who grew up with your <laughs> Bye Bye Birdie cast albums, he's Harvey Johnson. So, so you guys started. Was there a producer? Was there a director? What was, we, or just... we met with uh, several producers, one of whom sat down to lunch with us. And uh, <laughs> before we said anything, said, you know, I have a problem with this. They're scoundrels. <laughs> and I said, yeah, in fact, they're dirty, rotten scoundrels. <laughs> and um, David suddenly remembered he had to pick up his son from school. <laughs> and I had to go through the rest of the lunch. And, uh, you still haven't forgiven me for No, that. I haven't. Uh, and I won't. Uh, and then oh, we, in the next show, you'll get over it. And then we met with um, David Brown and Marty Bell, and they were really enthusiastic. And again, it's finding people who want to do the same show. And they seemed to want to do the same show yeah. we did. And we they did. asked all the right questions, too, I, th yeah. I think. And we, we just left there saying, you, you know, there's no substitute for that kind of enthusiasm and that kind of focus. <coughs> and, um, and one assumes that, obviously, the genre you were going into was musical comedy, for lack of a better term. But it, it certainly seems that in the last few years, uh, Broadway has become more hospitable to musical comedy. Is the, I mean, did you sort of say, OK, you know, Let's go full out and make it as silly and funny as possible. I don't know. We just kind of started writing it. I don't know if we thought that much. We're not. Well, I, you know, we <laughs> we, I think we both we're both comedy writers, and we both have a, have a sort of a spidey sense, you know, for what we can what we can play with and make funny, and you know, that was part of it. Um, but uh, I just want to continue the yeah. the process here, and um, you know, in our in our minds from the very beginning, we sort of had our fingers crossed that Jack O'Brien might. Uh, honor us <laughs> with his oh, directorial. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to be someone I'm not. Uh, but we really were hoping that Jack <laughs> that Jack and Jerry would do it with us. And and because uh, you had done Full Monty together, right? Yeah, we had done Jack, Jerry, and I had done Full Monty with Terrence McNally, and it was a great experience. And um, talk about you know what opened the door for musical comedy on Broadway. I think that show. And then, of course, a little show called The Producers in the same season. Um, oh, right. Yeah. There was that show. Yeah, sort of, sort, of, sort of got that going. Um, and I don't even remember when we, when we came to Jack and Jerry with it. Uh, um, well, there's, there's, a, there's a little hook left over. Because in the tsunami that was The Producers year, uh, and, and we had also done Full, Full Monty and were proud of it and thought it was terrific. And, we were thrilled about David because we had actually sort of birthed his process uh, uh, through, the, through the intercession of his friend Adam Gettle. Uh, we got his name. I called him on the telephone. He, I said, you want to do a musical? And of course, he sort of did. And then he sent some material. We'd, we'd had his albums, which we found wildly theatrical and kind of original and fun. And he submitted some songs that went straight into the show. Um, but 
in, in that year when producers did overwhelm everything, um, it was harsh to say the least. Not that we didn't love the producers. We all thought it was great. But it, it's tough when you think there's only one show in town. And that usually isn't the case. And amongst the grievances that I felt, and there were several, I notwithstanding, um, <laughs> was David, uh, uh, whose score was sort of passed over that year. And we were sort of concerned about it, because we thought, gee, this is his maiden voyage. Will he, will he ever recover from this blow? <laughs> and if he does, and we said this, Jerry and I said this, you know, if you've got another show, we're here for you. Let's get up on the horse and do it again. So I don't remember how it came either. I think you had already worked on a script. You guys already pretty much had a well, script. We, You'd asked us to do it, but then you went ahead and wrote it. We wrote it and we other. met at Jack's apartment and read the script. And right. you played us two songs at that time, I think it was. Uh, Give them what you want, and uh, nothing is too wonderful. Oh, really? Those are the first two. I yeah. think they and were. Great Big Stuff, I think. Also. <laughs> great Big Stuff. Yeah. Big Stuff was in it, yeah. 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 I remember, the, I remember nothing memory. is too wonderful. I, no I remember memory. nothing is too wonderful because I just, I remember. Hmm. So clearly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I wanted to ask, and this is probably the wrong, you know, an impolite question to ask a composer, but it, it seems to me that it sort of wanders with great affection over several decades of, kind of movie music and pop music. Did you, did you think specifically, oh, I'll write a Henry Mancini song, or oh, I'll write a this song, or, like, or did you just write what, you, what came to you? Usually it's, it's, it's sort of... You know, I wish I could remember how I write stuff. I mean, because sometimes I'll be writing something, it'll be going really well, and I'll think, just make a mental note and remember how you're doing this. And I, I think, for the most part, it's whatever feels right and whatever comes, comes to mind. Every now and then, uh, like with Love is My Legs and You Are My Love, So You Are My Legs, My Love, sung by these two, um, you sort of know that you're spoofing, like, maybe a David Foster pop song, a Celine Dion kind of thing. And so it suggests... It suggests where you're going. Um, this, sh this show, probably there was a little bit more of that than with Fulmati because it, it's, um, you know, I really wanted to, to attempt to pay homage to the Gershwins and to Noel Coward, and you can hear that in the right. show. But uh, I think you just got to, my mother always used to say and still says, make sure you have a broad frame of reference. And... Uh, and I do, musically. About what was your mother speaking about? <laughs> <laughs> she was talking about sex, but, um, <laughs> you know. I wonder. But I'm talking about music, and I do have a, a just, there's all kinds of garbage floating around, and you, who knows what's going to float to the surface, like the hand at the end of Deliverance, and then right. become a song. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's an idea. There was a, uh, however, Deliverance. I remember when I listened to the CD that you gave us, and on it was her lyric, uh, how it paints a silver ribbon on the waves, which I found particularly affecting, and if I may say so, unyazbekian <laughs> or disrayazbekian, um, because this uh, you in blue collar buffalo with full monty, uh, with all the grit and all the edge that that music has, uh, made a kind of sense. You seemed completely at home in the genre. You seemed to know much more, in a sense, than we did about where it was going. In this case, you on the Riviera in a, in a white tux, uh, uh, right away I'm laughing. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and plus the fact that I felt so completely that you were going into sort of dangerous territory, a much wider spectrum than, than almost anybody I know. 
and nailing them all along the way. That's what I think is, again, so much fun about the score. And when the, uh, when the album reaches its apotheosis, as we know it will, uh, <laughs> it, people are going to get into that because the styles are wildly divergent and they're all fresh and, and apt. I just have to tell you one thing my dad told me. Good God. Like, like two, or three, <laughs> two or three weeks ago. He said, I, I was, <clears throat> some of his friends were at his apartment, and I was saying something about remembering my parents banging on my door to turn my stereo down when I was listening to Black Sabbath. <laughs> and my dad said, yes, but I also banged on your door to turn the stereo down when you were listening to Bobby Short is Crazy for Gershwin. Same. And it's all there. And it's all there. I want to talk about, for a second, a, a song in the show that was added very, very late, which is, which is the 11 o'clock number. It's called D Dirty Rotten, Dirty Rotten Number, right? Right, the one we just saw. Yeah, that's what was on the clip. Which to and me is this the was, if I'm correct, because I got the same demo that everyone got, <clears throat> and we did, we went into rehearsals and rehearsed a month, and you got, you guys kept saying we need a tune for, the, for John and I to sing, the two, you know, anti-heroes to sing to sort of celebrate this journey that they had been through together. And I've gotten to sing a lot of great music on stage. I've gotten to sing a lot of great composers' works, but I have never, ever uh, been more rewarded by a piece of music, by performing a piece of music on a stage. I mean, what, to what, it's, it's, it's a wonderful moment on that, in that number every night where, where John and I connect on a very, very deep level in that song. It's a fun song, but there's a lot going on under that song, dramatically and emotionally. And the audience is caught up in it. We've had to, you know, we, we talked about adding a refrain to it because sometimes the ovations go on for a full minute. A couple times they've stood up. I mean, I've never had that experience before. And this came really, really late. And I remembered, <laughs> this was, I was so, you know, I'm not a writer. And, I, you know, I, I'm a journal writer, and I know how private that is, but you had to come up with that tune, and I remember we were in San Diego, and you had to present it to us. Like, they were harping, and we got to get this song, got to get this song, and you were, was it a writer's block? I don't know what it was, or if you were just afraid of it, but we were all out in the green room area, and you had to do this presentation in, like, a couple hours, and I could remember you playing the chords and singing along with it. I had a ball at... And you would throw things, and you were alone in that room. It was I thought I was alone in that room. <laughs> I've had two children, and it was in the same ballpark as sort of passing those babies out because they watched their mother do Jack, that. Jack had asked for the song for a year. Did you resist it? Did you not? Were you not sure what it should be? And then how did you come up with well, I, I, such a great opening lyric? Uh, you may be master of your chosen occupation with several strings of polo ponies in your stable. You must remember all the same that at the crux of every game is knowing when it's time to leave the table. Well, I can tell you exactly how I came so. up with that. <laughs> because at some point, Jack, it was either Jack or Jeffrey, I think it was Jack. Sure, said, blame Jack me, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, it's at some point, Jack said, you got to know when to leave the table. That's what this is about. Mm. One of you guys said that. So table rhymes with stable, and then boom. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. So the process, but, but the process of writing the song came out of um, a dramatic thing. It didn't start with a groove or a drum beat. It started no, it, off with like a, well, no, I'm just interested. It started, it started with, it started with, uh, <laughs> I don't know, it seems like 10 years worth of this, but it was probably about a year of Jack saying, we need a, 
we need that Roxy and Velma moment. And then, <laughs> and then, and then I, he gives me this jazz hands of phobia and sort of like, ah, the boom, man, the bomb. <laughs> and, ev and everything that scares me about Broadway is like coming flooding at me. You know, it's all the stuff like, oh, no, I'm. I'm too hip for that. I'm too hip for that. And Eleven o'clock. You were worried I was yeah. going to put them in leotards and tights. Yeah, <laughs> was, well, I was, it was Part just that <laughs> boom. I've worn before. Boom. I look damn good in. I just want to tell you. <laughs> but when I first Another did first the outline, show. and I said, and here, you know, this is the 11 o'clock number. And, and David said, oh, you don't need an 11 o'clock number. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, you do. And he said, no, people want to go home by that point. So you were resistant <laughs> from the beginning. I thought, we had, I thought we had a good big sort of bang up thing and actually Lithgow agreed with me on that um, you know we were both wrong but but Jack kept hammering 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 and um, and then I finally just I guess and then Jeffrey you were hammering too and I just sort of weakened I guess and I said I, okay I'm gonna do it and the, the thing that I latched on to that made me stop being embarrassed about this <laughs> was a groove and, and it was that and then, Off of any early Steely Dan record. Right, it was very Steely great, great And as soon as, as soon as that groove started, I felt like, and as soon as I realized it would be in a minor key, I just realized, okay, I can, I can just go with this and, and still give everyone you know, what they need and what they there's also, I mean, There's also the structure of the lyric which, you know, is like classic because you keep turning it with each time you do it to a slightly different syntactical tone. It is of such, I mean, I'm with you, uh, starting out with that verse and then going into it and how it lays itself out and falls down for you at the end mm -hmm. is, uh, uh, well, I mean, I too must say in my theater going, theater work experience, I've never, ever been near a piece of material that thrilled me to the degree that that one. I mean, it was... It, it was dignifies my... <laughs> I mean, seriously, I gotta oh. tell you, I gotta tell you in the playing it's of sort of it... Bigger than, it's a, sort of bigger than all of what we have done. I mean, it's, 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 it's what you hope for and almost never get. That you get to the last moment of the show and your butt gets kicked <laughs> and you think, but also Whoa, just I was still having a good time. I had no idea this was coming out. For the actors that are going to play this role of Freddie Benson, and there will be hopefully exhibitionists for years to come that will take this, this part on. <laughs> I'm going to come in after you, I think. I'm <laughs> and you'll be great. I've never done it before. But you know, he's a clown. He's a, he's a, he's a child. He's, you know, the, the actor's asked to do a lot of broad, physical, out there stuff. He, um, he's the comic engine of the thing. And he, and yet, by him giving him that number and taking in lyrics that are that smart, it dignifies Freddie. He gets it. He's, he's, it, it, it bookends his journey. He's gone through, you know... Education. He's an, a huge education. He's been in the gutter, and he's gone through it, and he's looking at a, a survivor. It's a song about two survivors. It's a song of beating... Who, who are having a good time. Who are having a great time, but who have gone through it. You know, you talked about the plays being a blood sport. You know, they go through it. And uh, it's, a, it's a very dignifying moment for, for, for especially my character. You know it's what I was going to say yeah. that's interesting about this? I've done a, new musicals with pop composers, and the process of doing a new musical is a rarity, but what's even more rare is 
to, to see a song being created while we're within the process, because nowadays the songs are done, you go in and you kind of have to fit your story around what's there. And you don't actually, like the old days, get to see composers in a room um, working on stuff. I've done musicals via fax machine, basically, where lyrics are sent in from other countries and you go, okay, we'll try this. And, um, but I think that's why this was so exciting, cause, and that's why the show is so exciting. It's the perfect blend of an old style musical, an homage to that, with you know bringing it up to date into this generation and that process and like this like that which was another song that was mm. put in um, at the last minute is so exciting because you there's just like the old days that you read about where the composer comes in the plus, plus he writes the music and the lyrics which is rare now too and to have um, both of these guys come into a room and and play a song for the first time and everyone sit around and. It's the most collaborative process. I mean, I remember talking with the swings about the 11 o'clock number. You know, we don't need an 11 o'clock number. I mean, there was this battle between, like, you know, <laughs> everyone, you know, talking to Jack about, no, let's just let David go. Leave him in peace. Fodder for the bar. You know, yes, every, everyone was every discussing, night. you know. I didn't know that. We don't really. need more music. I mean, <laughs> and it's so great to see everyone involved with the process and instead of, like, let's, you know, try to fit around an already created piece that can't be adjusted. And that, that number was, we were rehearsing it in San Diego during the last week of text. Mm -hmm. It came, that mm -hmm. number came the last week of text. Mm -hmm. And like this, like that came the last week in the room, literally. So, you know, we were working and continued to work all the way into New York. Mm -hmm. but. Did, did you feel that, that, because by the time you wrote both of those numbers, you knew who the actors were, were did you feel you were influenced by the actors? Oh, oh yeah. I mean, to, by, by, their, by the type of energy that they were, that they were showing, I mean, who knows if it had been other actors, uh, it could have been a completely different song. Oh. Um, but I mean, that's part of the process. I mean, this, you know, it, it, the the trade-off for losing what I used to have when I used to make my albums and be in charge of every aspect of it was not being in charge of every aspect of it. But what you get in return is this incredible uh, collaboration and. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, that song is a really good example of it. And starting with the, the, the fact that I just kept getting all this information from Jack. And I would, you know, Jack and Jeffrey, I would sit down and just say, give me more, give me more for a lot of these songs. Because I knew that just something they'd said would, they would say would click. And once it clicked, all this other stuff that they'd said would come into play. I, wouldn't even, I don't even remember whose is what, you know, Je Jerry, Jack, Jeffrey. Um, <clears throat> and then having those, knowing who your actors are, knowing what they're doing with the character, having them create the character, uh, you've, you've really, you've got a show, you know, you've got a real show that's, that's of a piece. And the, the, Jeffrey and I agree that the biggest compliment we can get about the show is when people say, you know, it's just, it seems seamless, the, yeah. you know, but that's a, that's, a, that's a compliment that has to be extended to the director and to the choreographer and to, um, and to the performers. This well. may be opening a, a can of worms, but uh, it's kind of fun because w there's a lot of talking and a lot of stuff that goes around. But my work with Jerry is on a far more abstract level because he is parallel tracking everything that I do. And we've learned how to sort of tag team it over the years because this is our fifth or sixth experience now. So, I mean, we're in such incredible shorthand. But so I, I watch him very carefully because his his degree of ease or his degree of, of complete get out of my way, I know what I'm doing, is dependent very much 
on the success of the number itself. That when he works hardest, we haven't sort of given him what David's talking about, enough stuff to tell his story. But in the case of, of this number, in the case of like this, like that, um, I, w I would look at him and say, so what do you think? And he would say to me, basically, it's done. It's all done. And, and like this, like that, I think you'd like do this, like that. 12 minutes or yeah. something. I heard the song once and I said, oh my God. And I went in the other room and I came back in 20 minutes, the number was done. I mean, and it's a charming idea and wonderful idea. And the song that was there, I liked too in the, work, in the last you, workshop. I didn't give you what you needed though. So and, I know, but it wasn't, it wasn't I, I liked that song. And David, I remember David saying to me, do you like that song? Can you do something with it? I said, yeah, I really like it. I could see them on a bench making out kind of dance number. And uh, how, where are we going with this? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, oh my God, am I glad we didn't do it. <laughs> am I glad we got like this, like that, because it's just, it's charming. And, and there are numbers that we almost continue to work till the last possible moment. And we'll, and we'll continue work on to do first yeah, national tour. We certainly will, uh, to sort of fix it, because we're still not where we want to be. Well, I mean, it's a that's, myth. That's it's the fun a of myth, it. I think, that most people would, would agree with, that by the time you open to the public, they walk away thinking, well, there, that's done. You know, Michael Bennett changed the, fir the, first, the second act opening of Dreamgirls when he did the tour. Just completely redid it and then put it in the Broadway production. And we kept changing things with Monty and putting him back in the National. Yeah, and here's the, the Broadway same thing. thing. Yeah, you know, you go Can you tell, because on in Great Big Stuff, the, my first big number in Act One, which went through a couple of versions, mm -hmm. but real early on, you seem to have a great eye. You would put it on its feet. We'd work really hard for two days getting it blocked. We'd run it twice. And you had absolutely no problems cutting it and starting from scratch again. It would be amazing. It didn't go on for weeks and weeks, and we tried to make it work. You, you could know, look. Is it, are you able to look at the bodies on stage? Game? They, don't look, they don't look comfortable? No. Or the story isn't clear? I feel that when you're doing a musical, this particular musical is more, was more about musical staging than it was about choreography. And, you know, the lyric... Nobody writes funnier lyrics than David. The lyrics are hilarious. If people are moving and jumping around, it's very hard to hear what they're saying, and you miss the joke. Okay, on that note, we have a clip of Great Big Stuff. Mm. Let's watch what you're talking about and then come back and pick segment. up the discussion. Great Big Stuff. I want a mansion with a moat around which I will float with some vast bottom babies in my glass bottom boat. In the Bahamas, Paisley silk pajamas, poker with Al Roker and our friend Lorenzo Lamas. Give me great big stuff. I really do deserve it. Great big stuff. With servants who will serve it. Great big stuff. I don't give a damn what it's firm. Every day's my birthday. Some naked twister, blotto in the grotto with a playmate and her sister. Ooh, rap stars will love me. Give me a posse, I eat. Chilling in the city, sitting pretty in the caddy with P. Daddy or Puff Diddy or whatever. Those lyrics don't stop. 
they don't stop. They're telling the story of Freddy being in this house for the first time and want what he wants. And so that's going to last until 11 o'clock. So if we mess it up there... <laughs> but it's also, it's fascinating watching it, how he is, you know, the focus has to be on him, but some of the stuff that's going him. around... Well, is, there's, an inter there's an interesting layered, the, the levels of Troy story about this number, because, and I'm, let me see if I get this right. We went through an early version where we threw everything at Four it. versions. Yeah. Then Jerry, he sometimes does this to me, suddenly said, you do it. And sort of left the room. And he, said, <laughs> and he said, no, and he said, it isn't about choreography. It's not about choreography. It's about, you have to do that. And so I remember we sort of looked at each other. And, and, we st and I, st I don't even know if any of the stuff. And there were no people on stage, no servants. No, there was no There were servants, then there were no servants. There was no servants. Then we brought the servants back. But and then I can't remember if any of the stuff that we discovered by ourselves is... But you know what? It's so fascinating that we're talking about this right now because... The, it was wrong to have me alone on stage, but by taking all that away from me, away. I had to use, start using my imagination and coming up. You couldn't choreograph those movements. Everybody asked no. me, Are you, did you make up all those movements of I, myself? And I suppose I did, but it happened because we, we let everyone story. else in the room and story. I had to find it in my body. Yeah, then when we added them on top, it was this great, it was totally all accidental time. process. Yeah. And also there was a thing about the show, which you talked about earlier, highbrow, lowbrow that I had to have my, my eye on from the very top of the whole creating the show with David, Jack and I and David. How was the show going to move seamlessly? How was it going to take us to the places we had to go? And how is it going to look like a place where rich people go who have excess money that you're not going to feel bad when he takes advantage of them, when the con men con them? So you'll still love the con men. So it was all about the glamour of the place and how it was going to move. I'd already done the tacky place, uh, not the tacky place, but the, you know, the drag queens are down the street. That's right. another French show. <laughs> this was a different French show. This was another French show. Long that, dresses. Yes, these are real girls. Right. So it had to have another style to it. And, and that elegance needed to be placed right at the very beginning when you see the girls in their, in their dresses. I mean, those dresses that we first had in San Diego were not pretty enough and so we went back to Greg and said no 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 it has to be more elegant and then he came up with his second set of dresses which are just unbelievable but so is the highbrow lowbrow that you talked about are you talking about the writing or the production yes all both? all it, it, in order for him to be this lowbrow, everything has to just be glossy and fabulous. And otherwise, he doesn't, he's not funny. Somebody, one of the, at the very first preview of this show in San Diego, uh, Bruce Valanche, our, our current Edna in New York, was the Edna on the road. And he and Marissa came down from Los Angeles where they were appearing there for, the, op for the opening. Yeah. I think it was the opening night. And Bruce said to me, at, he was the first person to find me when the show was over. And he said to me, do not let them clean, let make you clean this up. Because it's the most extraordinary blend of elegance and vulgarity I've ever seen. <laughs> and that's what makes it work. And you know, you know, sometimes, I mean, people tell you a lot of things, right? But occasionally, one of your friends looks you in the eye and says, don't screw this up. <laughs> <laughs> and you think, oh, I think I get it. Mm -hmm. He got what we were trying to do. And Jerry's absolutely right. It was creating a climate 
in which it was okay to watch reprehensible people doing something reprehensible. If you had a lot of sympathy for those people that they were ripping off, we were dead in the water. That first person you talked to saying these are scoundrels, this is a problem, was, was somehow channeling that and not seeing mm -hmm. that we could bounce it off another ethos, if you will. It was also interesting to see that first round of, of reviews in San Diego. Yeah. And there were some people who were like, what an elegant, beautiful, elegant. And then there was, there were, there was one review that was like, this is the most vulgar, disgusting. You know, it, so, it was just like, whoa. It's just, both right, both wrong. Well, well, yeah. I mean, you put them both together and you got something new and different. You know? <laughs> but if you only see you know, one or the other. Right. Sherry, I wanted to ask, as a performer, this lowbrow, highbrow high thing, were there moments when you thought, ooh, that's, I don't know that I want to go there? Or She's very vulgar. <laughs> I'm assuming she's highbrow. Oh God. She's worse than all of us put right together. Now. One of my best friends, as John Lithgow says, your best friends bring out your naughtiest side. <laughs> um, fortunately, I get to observe a lot in this show. And um, um, it was interesting in San Diego because I always felt that that would be a difficult audience to play for because of um, people don't like to see themselves portrayed on stage <laughs> sometimes, which is interesting because there's a lot of rich people in San Diego and they go to a show to see rich people being taken advantage of and that was going to be interesting um, to see how they responded to that. But I mean, I, I, I think that it's, it's not difficult because we're playing the piece, you know, and we we love these characters, but we we more we, we love the writers and we trust them. So, and the director obviously. So anything that they ask us to do is fine. And plus, I mean, I don't know if I'm maybe too young for my age, but I mean, I'm of a generation that this is not vulgar to me. This is just funny. <laughs> you know what I mean? I would. I mean, I, I you know, South Park the musical is you know one of I think one of the best musicals ever. I mean, it's so, I'm a person that, you know, I was always like, let's go further, you know, yeah. where's the word poop? Can we put that in somewhere? I mean, you know, um, but I mean, I think that's what we need to do. I mean, and we can, you know, talk about other things, but I think we do this show and we need to, need to, to save musical theater. And when we keep talking about saving it, no one's really doing it, but I think, um, people like David are, where we have to, sorry older ticket buying audience, we've got to bring younger people in. And it's a compromise between getting the people that can afford the tickets to come and see it and please them and still try to cultivate a younger generation without talking down to them but still giving them material that they can, you know, get into and think is cool. And I know I, as a performer, have always dreamed of being in shows that I think are cool. You know, we, we have to do shows that are like, oh, this is a great show and I understand that, but, you know, afterwards people come and you're like, yeah, it's fine, it's good, yeah, thank you. And this is a show that you, you actually tell people about, I think this is cool, I think it's the perfect blend of coolness and sophistication and, 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 um, and still able, I mean, 12-year-olds can come and and be entered into this world for the first time and and maybe appreciate it in a way that they wouldn't other musicals. Maybe, if I may, uh, this is inappropriate since there's one woman on the panel today, that we would pay this compliment. Uh, this is the cream center of our Oreo cookie. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, and as such, um, 
we went through a series of workshops, and Norbert wasn't available at first, although we always had our eye on him, but we were not always able to get him. And John wasn't, John joined us late, so there were several. We were trying to put the chemistry together, but Sherry was there from the beginning. And I remember saying to Marty Bell, uh, calling him up and saying, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen with the guys or where we're going. I cannot do this show without her. <laughs> because there, uh, this, is a, this is a very special kind of quality. You've got two incredibly funny, accomplished, basically clowns. And I, I remember saying to Sherry really early on, this is the musical people should see twice. They should see it once for what we're throwing out. Then they should come back and watch her character mm -hmm. from second sight to know what's going on. Because you can't have the funny girl up there trying to get the laughs. It, it's not the way her part is written, and it, although she must be irresistibly loopy and, and sort of klutzy, she can't ever know she's doing it because the character she's playing is far too smart for that. Uh -huh. So, you know, I, I cannot think, and I say this, you know, at the, at the risk of the rest of my professional uh, reputation, <laughs> of anybody else who could pull that off but let's Sherry. Let's stop right there. We have one more. We have another clip. Perfect. Great. Uh, great well. segues. You guys are great segues. Here's a clip of Sherry in the show. I mean, the air is French, this chair is French, this nice, sincere sun's air is French, the skies are French, the pies are French, those guys are French, these fries are French. Too. I was going to say, not a bad set. A little bit, a little bit. Um, how is it performing? I mean, the, the lyrics of this show are very funny, and one of the things that I, I think is extraordinary is that there are laughs within songs. Did you find as you were playing with, with audiences that you either had to make adjustments because certain laughs in the middle of songs would then make people not listen to the next song? No, he writes that way. I mean, he wrote that way in Monty. Uh, uh, I've never, ever in my life worked with material like this or a lyricist who serves his music that way. But uh, because he's a joke writer, too, as, as I'm sure Jeffrey will be the first to say, they work so beautifully off each other in terms of their wit that, that they understand each other. But he's hilariously funny, and so he takes care of his own jokes. And they're all there. We've never had to do with make a single adjustment. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes you have to add, let's add another four beats here because they're laughing. Right. You know, uh, uh, the perfect example to me, and the one that's complicated, is I'm still here. Because there are moments when those lyrics did land and get jokes, and then, you know, 20 years later, they don't get the same laugh, and you got this empty measure here, right? And that never happens with David's work. It just never does. Did, uh, did David do the fine tradition of stealing from you to, for his lyrics? Yeah, a little bit, a, but a lot. welcome to it. <laughs> no, not, what, not, I, didn't, I didn't just steal from Jeffrey. He also... I cannibalized <coughs> what he had already written, but he also just 
kept a you know, constant flow of ideas coming to me. And while some of the rhymes weren't that good, the jokes were great. And, uh, and, and he's actually, he actually wrote like full quatrains of some of the stuff in this show. I've got to give him credit for it because it was a lifesaver, especially toward the end of the process when I was, you know, had not much toothpaste left in the tube. <laughs> <laughs> I just have to ask about one, one, one lyric, though. Nothing is too wonderful to be true. Mm -hmm. Is that right? It's a quote from a physicist. Is it? From a 19th century physicist, yeah. <laughs> frame of reference, wide frame of reference. Very good. Uh -huh. His frame I of reference. I pondered over that phrase. I mean, it, it comes across like a Frank Sinatra song, and I thought, right, it's one of those phrases that you, you hear and you think, right. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I just thought was, you know, right in, right in keeping with the style of the show. It's like, oh, yeah. No, it's a little twisted, a little bit. Mm -hmm. See, it's always made perfect sense to me. Right. So maybe that's why I'm playing, <laughs> singing with such, that song. With, with such incredible yeah. conviction. I did want to say, because I, I thought what, what you said about helping the musical theater is important. And, mm -hmm. you know, just a plug, because I don't know if anybody else has done what you and your husband, Kurt Deutsch, have done in starting a record company. Mm -hmm. At the time when most of the major record companies are, are, are becoming less and less interested in theater music, to start Shikaboom Records, to... to started, I believe, to get the kids into the theater, and then, of course, people like me give you the new moon, which isn't exactly what you were talking well, about. Well, so we had to start another division. I mean, everyone was fleeing the cast album. I mean, they were shutting everything down in the major labels, and <clears throat> we'd, we were of the mind that Rent was not a fluke, that, um, that it wasn't just because of Jonathan's death that all these young kids were coming, that they really wanted to come. They just needed something to... Come to, to come see to see and, and to to be their entrance into this world that's kind of, you know, very uh, you know closed off to them, and um, so we had this idea that you know to start this record label initially for individual artists, Broadway artists, and then um, then I started to become an employee of my own company because we were these cast albums that we these shows that we felt needed to be recorded and preserved. Um, recording shows gives them a life if they're not successful. Um, necessarily um, critically um, if they're recorded they have a life around the world to be done in other productions and to live on the perfect example I have another segue is last five years um, that Norbert and I did together downtown for three months just as it was building an audience um, it closed and the cast album um, that the producers invested money in within three months made its money back because it it, it it spoke to people around the country that didn't get a chance to come see it. David Yazbek did get to come see the last five years and made our show go up late because he kept the cast, which consisted of two people, in a bar until 10 minutes before 8 o'clock <laughs> down the street at the Minetta Tavern, which I always wondered if that was like, did you start thinking of us for, the, for Dirty Rotten Scoundrels? Like, were you working on that then? No, in fact, your, your husband, when he heard about it, he said, well, Sherry, would be perfect for that. And I said, oh, no, no. <laughs> and, and I didn't know you well. I just knew, I just knew right. sort of what I you... Agreed. you know. I agreed. No, I just said, nah, she's too sexy. Yeah, that's what I said. And, and she's not. <laughs> <laughs> I go from cream to not being sexy. Um, yeah, but she's also sexy. You, you can be the cream great. if Jeffrey and I can be the chocolate wafers. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, back to um, business. Um, the point is, is that um, now we've, um, we are so busy. I think we have 11 releases coming out within a span of two months, and um, um, including Spelling Bee, um, Little Women, oh, what's that other show that we did? I can't remember. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Um, and uh, um, it's, it's fantastic because the idea is why are we, you know, giving away this fantastic product from our community? We're such, you know, 
we think so little of ourselves sometimes. You know, we're always trying to get with the big boys, so we go with major labels that if the show's a hit, it sells itself. If the show's not a hit, the labels won't you know, promote it anyway. They'll just shelve it. So now we're like, let's keep it for ourselves. We own the shows. Why don't we own the CDs and just do them ourselves? The, the music industry's changing, so we're doing that, and it's, it's, it's working out really, really well. Do you think she's passionate about this? It's great. But I think we can also Fantastic. say, I mean, I, I can... It's not me. I'm just the power behind right. the throne. I don't really do day-to-day -day business. I, I can say because I'm an outsider that from the get-go, this show has had some very inventive thoughts about the cast album, and if you stay tuned, you might be able to get that invention later on. So is that good enough to plant a, plant a seed? Yeah, yeah we, can plant, I, we, can, we can say that you know, this, this, is a, this is a big Broadway show, and um, we, we were pretty resolved from a pretty early point to not doing it, not doing the, the album the way it's usually done. <clears throat> and uh, so the, the production is, the production's doing with, with uh, Ghostlight, which is the other label, these guys' other label, um, we're doing it ourselves. Um, you know, it's different. If you're a small show and you really, you, you, you don't have to, it's very expensive to do a cast yes. album yes. on a Broadway show, much less expensive on an off-Broadway show. So um, it, it was a big deal to do it this way, and it took a lot of finagling from, uh, from our producers. And, I mean, they did a lot of finagling to make it work, and we all did. And, uh, and it's interesting, too, because I think, you know, certainly my generation, I think other generations, the cast album was the calling card. It was the entrance into the musical theater, and without them, mm -hmm. you know, one wonders if, you know, I mean, I remember the first show I ever saw was by by Birdie, and wondered what was all that extra music they were playing that wasn't on the album. Mm -hmm. Why did they put that in? Mm -hmm. It's like, mm -hmm. this is what it is. That's the right. also, It's also, I mean, we're, we're going we're gonna to do something with this album, an initial uh, thing with this album that will hopefully... Uh, Don't say too much. I can't say too much, but we'll, but we'll be really, be really noticed and really different, and... Um, uh, we'll hopefully get people, some people coming into the show whistling the tune instead of leaving the show whistling the tunes. Um, that's good. We like that. It's like psyching up before a rock concert, right. you know, by listening. <laughs> that's good. Mm -hmm. Norbert, I wanted to ask you, because Jack said Sherry was in first. When, when, when did you join the team here? Um, was it that CD that got you intrigued? The CD was intriguing because he was singing all of the material, and, and <laughs> this one doing a Viennese accent is not a, good, not a pretty sight. Kind of amazing. With the whips and the... He's such an actor, too. He's such a performer. I'm waiting, I'm waiting for the day when... Eight shows a week, I've no never way. seen your band perform, but I know Much it's... Uh, is there a road Do work. I see a road I company here? So. <laughs> um, I, I was asked to do a, a reading of it and was, it was in Wicked at the time and I injured my neck and uh, was sort of sidelined for a couple of months. I had to have a surgery and so I, was, I wasn't able to participate in that reading. And then, um, and we did the next one and, and had, a, had a, a really great time. It was two weeks, I guess, we spent working on it. I guess it was like a big sustained two-week audition for me. <laughs> but if it was, it was the most freeing, liberating sort of audition because the material I, I really responded to right away. Um, well, you and, you and John are so perfectly matched on stage. I mean, I, I, you know, 
Mm. I sort of can't imagine anybody else, you know, doing it. I know there will be others, but yeah. uh, but <laughs> but you're and you know it, it, the whole. It's just extraordinary. And they I just, really are great parts, and I get excited when a new great part comes along into the. To They're the, all great to, parts, but you always guess you could. They are great. All well, five of them. But you know, for guys like me. For, for the Norbert Butzes out there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and you know who you are. <laughs> you know who you are. <laughs> you know, who, who, who fall just smack dab in that crack between leading man and character actor, you know, just, and get lost in it so many times. Um, this is a part that asks you to do both of those and so, so much more. Um, it's a part that if you're, I'm, I'm learning to be humble enough, as Jack is constantly reminding us, you know, hold your horses. I know you're getting a lot of laughs, but it's actually because the writers are really, really good. <laughs> it ain't so much you. You're, you're doing okay, but remember that there's a story and a structure and a long way to go here. So I do think it's going to be a really rewarding, rewarding role for, for lots of lots of people for a long time, and I do think the show's got a life in it. I, I assume part of your task as director was to keep the reins on people, yes? Or yes, that's a sort of pejorative term. Um, no, not meant to be. We're stable, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Picking up on the image, we're in the horse. Mm -hmm. yeah, I, yeah, I mean, look, uh, I was having uh, dinner last night with a very close friend, Mike Nichols, and we were talking about this deadening quality of comedy, how how uh, torturous it is to the actor, how unfair. Because comedy is basically spontaneous. Uh, and the performer has to be surprised so that the audience is surprised. And the minute you know when it's canned or when it's being remembered, it isn't funny in the same way. But when, when we are constantly, not, when we're innocent in the, in the face of, of comedy is when it's at its freshest. And a long run is a very hard, numbing thing for talented people to do because they are creative and they're restless and they want to go further. And if you got a great laugh on that on Tuesday, on Wednesday you don't get it, you start to try for it. And the minute you try for it, you don't get it. You, or you get it by sort of demand, which is not the same kind of comedy that you started out with. So. You, if you're directing a comedy piece, you have to return to the company much more frequently to sort of get the barnacles out. Take the improvements Absol out. Well, not, it isn't improvements because I don't feel rigid about it. I love the fact that, there's, that they're playful and that they, they find new colors. I do mind that they collect laughs like slave bangles. <laughs> Because then you hear them clunking through the performance. <laughs> and it's this kind of language that just makes working with him. So, so, you know, so you have to constantly remind yourselves, all of you, that as I say, put this on your m makeup mirror. You're not funny. It is. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you serve it, you have a better shot at being a naive in the face of comedy. I, I will say this about the role. Um, is that it has become, a, 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 as it was written, we, there were opportunities for physical gags. They were rife with them, especially for Freddie. Um, 
the process of finding what those were, coming out of the story, finding a logic to them, finding a reason that I have to roll around on the floor to get a bite out of a piece of beef jerky and make that as you know, honest as I can is really a challenge, man. And it is, that's why I'm not, I, I, I do have ADD and I do have a hard time in long runs. I never do a play longer than a year, not, because I honestly think I'm not, I, I just can't serve it anymore after that. This one I think I can go for a while because man is it a challenge. It is a challenge to find. It is a marathon that we're running. And it, 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 I love blood sport. I love that idea. Not just that the intensity of how much these characters want what they want, but for the actor, for my own instrument, I have a long, uh, way to go each night and how can I find a way to do that with less effort or less effort in the shoulder and maybe put more of it in the stomach where the audience is going to see it. How can, I, um, how can I aerobically prepare during the day through what I'm eating, through the vitamins I'm taking. It's a real holistic experience and it's thrilling. We were just talking uh, it's last, a fascinating yesterday process. to Carly, who's our lead in Hairspray. I mean, she's 21 years old, and she's playing the lead in Hairspray, and she's just now beginning to understand how to do the show eight times a week, and yet still be able to live during the day because she hasn't blown her wad at the theater every night, given 100%, but still saved something to actually wake up the next morning. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a process. But Jeffrey, like, I mean, it's interesting because he has written so much comedy for television and he's one of, you know, people here are always trying to make money and go do television. <laughs> and here's Jeffrey coming back, writing years of comedy, doing television, wanting to come back to Broadway. So that's, to me, been like a godsend. And, did you enjoy it more than television or different? Yeah, I, I had great times in television. I had terrible times in television. It just, it wasn't fun anymore and it wasn't a challenge. And I do my best work when I'm scared. And I hadn't done this before and it scared me. Okay. You know, and, and the collaborative process was something I was looking for again. Okay. And, you know, was blessed by the group of people. I mean, <laughs> going off of what Norbert was saying though, I mean, we're really blessed with this cast because what all of them bring is there is a reality underneath the comedy, you know? We had a couple of people audition before Norbert came in, and um, we always kind of knew we wanted Norbert, but we just, you know, had to be sure. Right. <laughs> but, you know, I just remember one audition where I started here, and by the end of the audition, I was back against the wall because it, people were pushing it so hard. And what all of them do, and you know, Norbert does, is... There's a reality underneath. My favorite moment in the show is toward the end when Norbert takes John's hand, he shakes John's hand and says he's about to leave, and you see he just doesn't want to go. Mm -hmm. And that's underneath, you know, all of the performers. So we're really blessed there. Now, you, you took this show to your theater in, in San Diego, so in a way it was, a, it was a today's version of Out of Town, which I think you, we all have to salute the producers because in this day and age that adds to the budget. Boy, is it ever. Um, but it was obviously worthwhile. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, Jerry and I have talked a lot about this. I mean, it, it's as, shows, as the economics of shows become more and more prohibitive, we are encouraged to work in front of the audience, basically. And it's not conducive to taking chances. The more the budget goes up, the more millions are on the bottom line. 
the less reckless you feel. You feel this huge obligation. And one wants to feel sassy and sort of fun when you're doing this sort of thing because it's communicative. And we learned with, with Monty, and we learned, and then we insisted, and to their credit, to the producers of Hairspray, that we needed to go away. We needed to be with the company. We needed to find our own society. And also our common denominator of humor. When we're not worried about what the internet is saying or what the, the page six on the post is reading, you know. I mean, the, the appetite for this kind of, of feeding frenzy is, is debilitating, to say the least. And so, and you know, my folks have this theater in San Diego, and so I've had it, had it for years, and I know what a hermetically sealed, what an incredibly nourishing environment that is. And it was, Jerry and I, you know, we play when we're together. And so, and, and that's where the joy comes from, our, from the work that we like to do together. And so, it was greatly to the producer's credit that they uh, allowed us to do this, greatly to the credit of the Globe, that is that kind of organization that, that uh, maintains that kind of climate. And it made a huge difference for us because we were able to get almost all of it, if not all of it, mm -hmm. up on its feet. And so when we came in, we knew what our assignments were and we went to work on them. What, what were the biggest things you learned in San Diego? Wow. Well, I learned that I, I sat next to Jack at the last preview oh, wow, and yeah. I watched the More We Dance number and I said, that is the worst thing I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> and the worst thing you've ever done. I said, I'm starting over. But, uh, uh, well, it was, let me just say something about that, because that, that is your brilliance. Jerry, as a, as, a, as, a, as a creative partner of mine, came to this as a supporter. And he came into it realizing that it was text funny, and it was fraught with plot, and that it wasn't a dance show. And he kept saying, well, it isn't about choreography, right? Then he, he did a wonderful job, and he put it up, and as the leavening was going on, as the jokes were starting to bloom, as we were finding more and more about rhythm and things like this, Jerry went right away, before we even opened in San Diego, to do Cajo Fall, where he laid out some of the most dazzling tracks of choreography of the year and knocked everybody into a cocked hat with what he could do. And, and meanwhile, we're getting better out there. And I'm watching this show go, and I think to myself, boy, this is starting to look really good. I think Jerry should see it again. <laughs> Get my choreographer back. Because he had been able to celebrate his particular genius as a choreographer, where it was being asked for, where it was absolutely essential that he take young men and turn them into these hilarious but very convincing women, and, and, and through the use of dance. And he came back fluffed and glossy, <laughs> thinking, you know, yeah, I, I'll, I'm happy to see this show. <laughs> because his work, you know, wasn't in shape. I, I knew what he could do. I knew what he was capable of doing. And we'd gone on. And then it was time for him to sort of look at it again. And I think you changed every single thing you did in the show. Well, I, I certainly changed uh, The More We Dance completely. But we changed the writing of it, and we changed the story of it, and we, and we made it clearer. It was quite uh, chopped up. It had like nine sections. And we just got it all much tighter, the storytelling of it tighter. 
it always comes down to the storytelling. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's always about the storytelling. Uh, and then I was listening to David's music, fresh, from Lacage, and I hadn't seen the show in, you know, six weeks. And I'm sitting there, and the overture starts. Dun, 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 dun. And I go, I want to dance to that. That's what I said to Jack. I said, I want to dance to that. So suddenly I had this idea in my head of, you know, seeing the cast in full tableau on the Riviera, swirling it up as we reveal John. And, and that idea came from seeing the last production in San Diego and then executing it here in New York. And I think it gives the show a new beginning that it's so needed. It needed that fresh breath of Riviera air in order to set you in the right place. That's great. Where, where did the, 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 the subplot, the Joanna Gleason, uh, Greg Jabbar plot, is not, I mean, the characters are in the movie, but they're quite different. When, did, when, when and how did those characters get, get created? Well, we needed, well, we needed to give the principal Arrest. <laughs> so <laughs> practical, great art. It great started art that comes. way. Um, it was basically a three-person story, and we just need just for the rhythm of the piece. And here are these other people in it. And actually, the character that Joanna plays actually started out much sillier. Um, she was a much sillier, you know, not as bright, vain woman. And. So we th when we were doing the workshop, somebody brought up Joanna Gleason. We said, no, 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 she comes off as too intelligent. And then we thought, you know what? It's Joanna Gleason. If we can get her, <laughs> let's see if we can build something around her. And she came in, and it was a very small part. The romance was there, but it was really not written. Um, Greg's character was originally written for Dennis O'Hare, who's a completely different performer. Yeah. Um, and as we had the two of them, we just started building it more and more. And at first I kept thinking, oh, we've got to go back to the secondary characters. And then Jack pointed out, these are the characters who, as you know, John and Norbert and Sherry are knocking themselves out with the plot and the humor. Here are the characters who can carry the theme of the show, which is that everybody's looking for a fantasy, but what you really want, as Jack put it, is you know, somebody that you can sit at home with a cup of coffee and watch TV at night that that's what people are really looking for. Fantasy's great, but... And when he said that, it just opened up those two characters for me, and I think for David as well. That we knew this is what we wanted from these two. And the two, the two of them, Joanne and Greg, really just informed us so much about who those people were. So, so their music came l later mm -hmm. than, yeah. than that's others? Nice. Yeah, well... Her first song was always there. Her first mm. song was always there, and his was his first song always there. Chimp in a suit. You did that yeah. during the yes. workshop. Yes. Yeah. Right. The second yeah. workshop. Mm -hmm. But yeah. the song that they sing together fully came out of that. Exists like that. Like this, like that. Came out of. Yeah. Jeffrey really, really, really worked hard on that aspect of things, and uh, I didn't get it, <laughs> but then I got it, and when I got it, I. <laughs> you did you know, it. When I got it, I did it. I, yeah, I was a little slow on the, on the uptake. On it that just one. felt to me also, looking at the material dramatically, that if we didn't have someplace else to look, if it was just the three scoundrels sort of doing their number, that it was, it was awfully sort of two-dimensional. And that you had to have, you, could, you couldn't have a conventional shift there, but it did need something.
And I, and I felt that the values that, that, I mean, we're always looking in the shows that we work on for wh where the heart of the show is, where, where, where not only where it's clever, but where it is meant to touch you, to grab you, to surprise you. And that's always the heart. And we felt that people at a certain point in their lives who feel they've either not been up to romance or have been past it, that could be astonished by finding it, then maybe there was hope for the scoundrels as well. Right. I mean, and in other words, a con is a lonely thing to do. If you're conning somebody, you really can't take somebody in on it. You've got to do it yourself. You've got to believe your little performance, and you've got to go through with it. But you, don't, you can't share it with somebody. That's an interesting thing. So this whole quality to me of, of loneliness at a certain point in one's life was very, very interesting to me. And I thought, boy, there's common ground for all of them in an odd way. And I, I have to say that they, they've written, but also because it is Greg and Joanna, um, they were allowed to write like what is some of the most classic musical theater moments. I mean, sit there every we night. watch their shadows sometimes. I mean, it's like a master class of these actors. And um, the scene, I mean, you, don't, you won't get any better, any better scenes um, in any show anywhere. <laughs> and, and you won't get them played any better than what Greg and Joanna can do. I mean, it's masterful writing and it's masterful acting. And like this, like that is, to me, the heart of the whole show because it, it allows the piece to, right then, I mean, it, it goes to another level. The show moves into classic, to me. And, 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 um, and to everyone else who sees it. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they say. I, I think it's cool because the... I want to the... ask you something. When we were in the rehearsal studio, it is, it is, we're talking about what changed. There was a moment, Greg and Joanna have their classic about what has become known as the balcony scene, mm -hmm. um, that started with a, a hungover pantomime <laughs> involving a cup of coffee, Mm. And some sunglasses, and we ran. We did this thing in this in the rehearsal hall in San Diego, and the whole company of the dance. We'd all run in and just sit and watch the thing, and we'd laugh ourselves sick at the brilliance of this really ingenious physical thing, and it never made it into the show. How I f and I forget that journey. I thought as I was watching the the non-spoken physical comedy they were doing, mm -hmm. but it didn't make it. Why? Because um, the show, show would have been four hours long. I mean, there was so much funny stuff. Amongst the uh, uh, fortuitous influences in my life is George Abbott. I was actually the last person to work with Mr. Abbott uh, at the, when he was 105 on Damn Yankees. And George Abbott, there were a lot of, in those days in the theater, there were sort of maxims, you know, which we keep forgetting, and they're really there because they're really great. But Mr. Abbott was a great subscriber to build to the curtain. He would put a clock, an emotional clock, on the evening. And, and you have to then, as you start moving toward your goal, you have to sacrifice some of your best work. Because we love it, but they don't love it. They, they want to go home. You know, they've, enough already. And I knew in our show, we had so many laughs. It was such a funny book. 
And it was such a funny score. And you had such funny actors. I thought to myself, gee, pumping this up with laughter is not what the name of the game is. Committing ourselves to the line through is what the name of the game is. And so it became very clear after a while that we were just entertaining ourselves. <laughs> and that what and they had written, what he'd written in the script, was really what I had to serve. Not just how, what, how, how much fun we were having. So it became, you learn these things after a while, I hope. <laughs> I don't think I ever will. <laughs> you have to direct everything I ever do again. I'll never learn it. So save it for the Christmas party. Okay, yeah. I, I wanted to know when, th there are some ingenious ways that the fourth wall is broken in this show, and I wanted to know how, how they, did they creep in? Did no, they, they were in there from the very beginning. Uh, I was, when I first read the book, and they had written, Jeffrey had written that Norbert's character appears in the box. And I thought, a real flag went up. And I thought, whoa, I can't do that. And then I thought to myself, gee, maybe I can if I do it, if other people do it. Because again, I was constantly aware that we were playing a game that is a game within a game within a game has to do with her character, has to do with the nature of the theater, has to do with the nature of a con. How many ways could we pop that and still keep the integrity of it? And there were quite a few more when we started out in San Diego. We were breaking the fourth wall a lot. And, and I was castigated in the press and by my dear friends uh, for doing it too much. And I listened to them and thought, oh, okay, I can fix that. And so we just simplified it, basically. But um, it was, it's a, you know, it's a delicate balance. Because you can, you can stay too long at the fair there. And, and, uh, and I was worried about that. But we had a great time. I loved every one of them, including the, is it one time that they asked for something from the, from the conductor? Yes. <laughs> I always think that's a, a, a wonderfully silly thing. If yes, you can, it if is. You can it's sort good. Of get away with it. So are, 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 are you actors, are you sort of optimistic about the Broadway that, that, that you're very important players in? Right this season, yeah. <laughs> wow. I mean, this show in another season would be a runaway, couldn't get a ticket for eight months type That's, of a that thing. That sounds so familiar to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's, it's not a producer's. It's not that situation. There is a lot. You know, we are, there are still four major musicals to open before the end of the season. It's just incredible to me. And there's a lot of great work going on, as well as a couple of fantastic new plays. Mm -hmm. Holy cow. Mm -hmm. I mean, not just like okay plays, but you got Doubt and Pillow Man, like two major new plays. It's kind of great. It's very great. I you're, don't know. I don't have a kind of mind that can like analyze the thing. You're an important player on Broadway. Am I? Can I ask you a question? Am I a player or a player? Why can't you afford slots? <laughs> <laughs> Jerry can't either. Because I, I take not. my cues from him. Host. Right. I'm a style. It's all about style. This is socks, my friends. This costs like 12 bucks. <laughs> yeah. right. But I'm not going to wear that hat either. So. You know. <laughs> oh, yes, you are going to wear that. <laughs> but do you mean optimistic about the state of theater yeah, in general? Yeah, I wanted to pick up on what you had said. In San Diego, um, I remember you know, I'm so out of touch because I have a new baby. <laughs> but one of the things that I did know and that we did talk about was that, that at one point when we were in San Diego in the fall, there were two plays on Broadway, each, one, each one with after. the one person cast. Mm -hmm. So there were actually two 
actors. People on stage in, in plays on Broadway. That was it. And I think for a week there was maybe one play on Broadway with one... I mean, that's... I just can't even believe it when well, I look at... there were even more than that. There were three or four at one point. Yeah, with just... I mean, that, that was it for plays. I mean, and, um, and musicals, it does, there's, there wasn't that many. When you look at the pictures of the old theaters and, and how many shows are running, and I know gypsies that are, you know, that went from show to show and raised children, you know, for 30 years. So I'm optimistic, but I'm, I'm, I, I do think we need to make some changes. For instance, this season even, we're acting as if there can only be one big musical on Broadway in a season. Meanwhile, in the movies, not that we have to compare to the big boys all the time, but you know, there are a lot of blockbusters every year and they are able to sustain themselves, of course, but because they don't pit a, an action adventure movie against a, you know, a, a great uh, comedy, you know, blockbuster. I mean, musicals are, are both the same genre, but they, we have to be able to support each one um, uh, as its own entity, you know, and not pit them against each other necessarily, unless it's good press and we all need press to like keep sustaining <laughs> ourselves. But I'm optimistic about theater, but I do think I'm not into maintaining the status quo. I think we need to have to support new writers and that's the only way because we're excluding them, we're making them, I mean, people, People are not encouraging them, and they're, and, and they're encouraging revivals. On the other hand, they need to say, this may be not my cup of tea, my perfect thing, but I see its value, I see its weight, I see its, its ability to, to last into the future, and we have to start doing that, and otherwise we're, ki we're gonna kill ourselves. We are. Well spoken, yeah, okay. I agree. I think I think certainly part of part of what what you're talking about is you know in a way the fact that that you know there are collaborations that 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 continue and then welcome in new people and stuff like that and I also think that that you, you, your show is being is being positioned and, and publicized absolutely accurately I love the five stars from mm -hmm. in the show you know <laughs> sold out of mugs and stuff like that you know I mean I. I I notice them, and I think to myself, you know, listen, everybody. This is the, this is the sense of humor that these guys are doing. This is a, this is a silly musical comedy, you know. And, and I love that it's, that it harkens back to a to a to a time when there's a really scripted musical story that that you know is about scoundrels. As the guy mm -hmm. said, I have no you know, no no no, no problem. Um, so, you gonna do another one? I hope so. I'd like to with all these guys, <laughs> you know. Means you have to work. I mean, I work. Just, yeah, well, that's yeah. But no, I just went back to LA to put my house up for sale. Yeah. Like you know, I think I'm done there and I'm happy here. So good. Yeah. So good. Right. <laughs> we didn't talk. We didn't talk about John. John Lithgow. Let's talk Who? about John Lithgow. <laughs> He, he's truly Let amazing. me talk about John. Talk about John. Well, I mean, uh, it's, it's probably safest that he isn't here. Uh, <laughs> uh, he, is, he is the rarest of theater animals that I know of. He is the authentic American light comedian. Now, the fact is that John can play serious work. He can, he can sing. He can do any one of a number of things. He's a great classical actor. He comes by an extraordinary tradition. And I had not, I knew his family. I had known him casually, but we were not friends. I'd never had him in a show or directed him before. And, and there, the, the, the graciousness, the intelligence, the, the selfless ability to lead the company without equivocation, uh, 
no complaints. I've never seen anyone work harder physically at, at, at dance work or, <laughs> um, you know, because he's not a natural dancer, and yet he's gotten greater and greater and greater. Every, every performance gets better. Um, he sets a tone that, it, you know, is frankly money in the bank. Hmm. And if you have, a, if you're fortunate enough to have Lithgow in your, in your, up your sleeve, you're probably three quarters of the way there. <laughs> the difficulty is he can make even sort of moderate stuff look really good. And you get comfortable trusting him. So you have to look beyond his particular brilliance at your own work and be your own judge because he's going to be there with the goods no matter what happens. And he's worthy of the best material all of us can bring. The fact that that man who has a career in, has had a major career in television, won in the films uh, as well, uh, it, it nominated for every or won every <laughs> a, a, award you can get, chooses to do eight performances a week on Broadway when comparable actors in his status who will be nameless can't be bothered to think of themselves working that hard is one of the most moving things that's ever happened to me in my career. That's what I think about John <laughs> I also watched him do something extraordinary the other night. The audience was standing, oh, yes. standing ovation, and because it's Broadway Cares, Equity Fights AIDS Week, he came down and said to everybody, thank you for standing. I have something to say. You may sit down now. He said what he had to say, and then he said, and now you may resume your standing ovation. <laughs> and everybody went back up. And I thought, no, only a genuine person can get away with that. He is so incredibly comfortable in his skin. When we were in San Diego, this is a, a, a fun story that I like to tell, but John was so gracious to me, uh, being uh, the nobody sort of that I am and at this point, and, and you know, he had been on a major, major television show, and he would uh, invite me out for sushi, and he, he knew um, one of the managers of the, of the Padres, and he took me to a ball game one night, and um, <laughs> we met at his downtown hotel, and I thought that there was some protocol that a big star had to do to go into the, no, he just, well, just walk down to the ballpark. It was about a half a mile walk down to downtown. And we walked through very crowded streets of the downtown San Diego with outdoor cafes. And, and I'm walking along, and John is six foot 11. He's just an enormous man. Um, so, so recognizable, just that big mug, you know? And, and we're passing and people are calling out, John, or, you know, waiters, you hear trays dropping. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Whole trays dropping in cafes. And I'm looking around and, and he, he knows it's happening, but uh, very detached from it at the same time. Mm -hmm. An incredibly healthy perspective. And then we go to the ballpark and we sit in these um, VIP seats right behind home plate. I'm a big St. Louis Cardinals fan. He's a big Boston fan. And we all know how that turned out. But um, <laughs> uh, we're watching the Padres and these batters, you know, uh, Khalil Green, they'd come up to the batter's box and they would tip their hats to John before they would go to home plate and bat. And it was, I'm like 11. I'm just so <laughs> like this, you know, and the bat, the ball boy is tossing balls to me and they're signed and, and John's calling them by their first names and come on, Kev, go hit a ribby for us. I'll do my best, Mr. Lithgow. And they'd go up to the plate. <laughs> and then we're looking at the big screen. And John, who's been photographed at major events and is very, very, very comfortable on camera, obviously. 
and he's tastefully got a cap on, trying to be, you know, somewhat uh, discreet. And I look up, and there's the two of us on the huge <laughs> screen, and I go, oh <laughs> and John's like, easy, Freddie. You know, we were getting into character already. It was so funny. Uh, I just. Uh, I also heard there was there was one evening in California where he was honored or part of a, one of those benefits and like that. And there was a question about what the dress code was, and his assistant had told him it was black tie, and it wasn't. So he was the only one in the place in black tie. So he got up at the, at the microphone and said, um, I'm so embarrassed for all of you. You <laughs> 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 knew exactly, exactly how to do it well. That's good. You, you guys are great. Um, anything else, any sort of, since we're winding down here, any, any uh, final things we haven't covered? Thank you for bringing uh, up John. Thank you, Sherry. Mm. No, I mean, it must be evident that we've had a wonderful time together, that we care about each other, we all respect each other. Uh, uh, it's been, as, as Jeffrey pointed out, it is the essence of collaboration, and it's also, for me, a kind of miracle, because uh, uh, when it works well, it seems easy and breezy and kind of fun, and, and it isn't. It's the hardest probably art form in the performing arts because there are so many people who need to be folded in, listened to, and accommodated. And it only works, really works, I think, when everyone is vibrating on the same frequency. And, you know, we, I think that one of the concessions we need to make to each other and here today is, is that that uh, it wasn't a walk in the park. It was a great privilege and a great honor. And, and I love the fact that in this day's climate and in, in this country, with whatever we may fee be feeling about it, uh, it is not an ignoble thing to make people happy and laugh for two and a half hours and forget the other parts of their lives. And for that, I am grateful to everybody here. Really. And on that note, I would like to thank you all for being here. This has been the American Theatre Wing Seminar from the City University Television Studio in New York. Thanks very much. <laughs>